Let me invite you now, if you have a Bible, to open it, please, to the book, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 17. And today, we're just going to look at one verse in this glorious high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. This truly is the Lord's prayer, one in which he prays for his church. And today, we're talking about cultivating communion with God as a biblical foundation for change. And so we're going to talk about experiencing intimacy with God. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from John's Gospel, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you would empower both the one who preaches and the one who listens to be able to recognize that your word that goes forth out of your mouth prospers where you send it, that it's alive and powerful, and that it produces fruit in those who hear it and are moved to obey it by your spirit. And so we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think about Christianity and you talk to other people about Christianity, the question often arises, well, what is it? What is Christianity? Some people say, well, it's a philosophy of life. Others say, well, no, it's more of an ethical stance. Or others will claim, no, it's a supernatural experience. But none of these things really get to the heart of the matter. However, each is something a Christian has, but not one of them really serves as a definition of what a Christian is. Christianity has at its core a transaction between a person and God. Christianity is intensively relational. We get to know and are known by, which is more important, and then we grow to know our covenant God, our covenant relationship with Him. And so Christianity is highly relational. A person who becomes a Christian moves from knowing about God distantly to knowing about Him directly and intimately. Christianity is knowing God. Jesus said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so this morning, we want to talk about what it's like to know God and to grow in intimacy. And intimacy, we all know, has to do with closeness. If you look at the quote in the front of the bulletin, I put it there to help you understand exactly what I mean. We use the terms, I feel far away, or I feel close to someone, describing what level of intimacy we are then experiencing. 
And so we use spatial terms to talk about relational truth. But in this regard, we're talking about relational truth. We're talking about growing in our knowledge of God. And who is God? Well, God is a triune being. He is Trinity. There is a threeness to God and a oneness to God. He is one in substance and being and essence. And he is three in people. And so knowing God involves knowing all three members of the Godhead. And it is participation in the life of God. Uh, and that's not mysticism, that's biblical. And so today I want to lay out the biblical case for the strongest possible intimacy with our triune God. And we're talking about participating, as Peter does, in the divine nature. Not in any way meaning we become gods, no. We will always be creatures. We will always be creatures made in His image, and we grow in our understanding, but it's participating in that nature uh, of God. And so we're going to examine today the precious doctrines of union with Christ and communion with Christ that bring us the ability to participate in this relationship and guarantee and ground this relationship. Christ's work as our mediator, the go-between, the one who is uh, our mediator, uh, guarantees and grounds the relationship and we're going to look at how this intimacy is enjoyed both cor corporately but also personally as face-to-face. And through it all, we're going to see this morning that intimacy with God is not something optional, an add-on, or for the more emotional ones in the church. To know the Father through the Son is eternal life. Eternal life is both quantitative and qualitative. Eternal life means we participate now in life that will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's quantitative, but qualitative Knowing God, being in a relationship with Him, causes us to experience here and now a foretaste of that life we will enjoy forever. And so, when we understand knowing in the biblical sense of the word, we admit that a profound intimacy with God is the essence of our Christian life. It's not a carrot held out for the pious or a bonus given to those who are successful worshipers. Intimacy is guaranteed to the Christian in Christ. It is therefore an indispensable presupposition or starting point of the Christian life. It's not an optimistic goal, but rather it is life in itself. And any talk of intimacy with God must begin with the intimacy of what God is. As a community of persons united in love, the triune God enjoys eternal communion. Before the foundation of the world, the Father delighted in the Son, in the bond of the Spirit. And virtually every verse regarding the pre-creation life of God describes the Father focusing His affections and purposes on the Son. And likewise, the Son, in the power of the Spirit, commits Himself utterly to the Father. And this is the intimacy that both predates and produces the universe, where God speaks Ex nihilo, ex nihilo, that is, speaks the world into existence out of nothing. 
So we have come from divine intimacy and are intended for divine intimacy. We are creatures made in his image. And you are not hidden on all six cylinders unless you find yourself enjoying intimacy with God. The theologian that I find writes on this most powerfully is John Owen. And John Owen wrote an entire book called Communion with God. And he, at least in that book, talks about growing in communion and closeness and intimacy with the Father through his love, with the Son through his grace, and with the Spirit as he inhabits us and indwells us. And so that is what we're talking about today, something that the saints of old have known much about and something which we are growing in our learning about. The Father created through and for His Son, and He created in order that there might be billions of more adopted sons filled with the Spirit sharing in this eternal love. So there's a sense in which our being connected to Christ and in union with Him allows us to be in this circle of God's outpouring of his love and enjoyment. Um, if, not, if we know nothing of divine intimacy, then we don't have Christianity right. We've got it wrong, and we've got being a creature wrong. We exist to belong to this intimate communion, and the importance of intimacy must be stressed, but we also must be stressed how we achieve or get or receive that intimacy. And so our milieu as people in the world is we are created in God's image. And then God redeems us because we're fallen and we've lost intimacy with God and we're far away from God and relationally he feels distant. But once we're converted, God begins that process of renewing his image in us and our intimacy with God grows. So how does true Christian intimacy is not about imitating the Trinity or gazing admiringly upon the Trinity or even linking arms with that great dance of love. Christianity is not at all about our journey up to God's intimacy. It is God in Christ descending. You know, have you ever heard a song, Climbing Jacob's Ladder? That is theologically bankrupt. Those steps come down from heaven, and that is the idea of God condescending and coming to us to save us. That's what that's all about. And so intimacy is something God achieves himself. There is a term in theology regarding the Trinity called perichoresis. I've mentioned it before. Peri is a Greek word meaning around, and choresis is a Greek word meaning dance. It's the word we get choreography from. You know what a choreographer is? He's a person who designs and comes up with uh, dances and directs that and plans it. And so we, as believers in Christ, enter into the dance. But the way of intimacy is an arrow coming down. We do not spiritualize our humanity into God. In Christ, God incarnates his intimacy into our humanity. 
At the incarnation, Jesus enters our life. At the cross, he puts our cold and hateful humanity to death. In the resurrection, he rises as the true man of God, the proper man. And in the ascension, he carries us up with him to the Father's right hand. And at Pentecost, he pours out his spirit to seal the believer unto himself. So everything about us is the work of of our triune God. Everything that is designed not only to make us, but also to save us, is His work. And so in the gospel, we are caught up into God's own intimacy. And we must again stress, this is not of our own doing. We didn't decide to join the party. Instead, we have been seized and carried and now seated in Christ at the Father's right hand. The way of intimacy has not been our way made with God, but rather His way made with us. And so, the beautiful truth here is a truth that we must think about all the time. This is where the believer really stands in Christ, filled with the spirit of adoption, calling our dear Abba, our Papa, our Daddy, True Christianity is not about obtaining favor with God, but rather it's about sharing with, by the Spirit in the eternal intimacy of the Father and Son. No wonder Peter says we participate in the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. Now, is intimacy something I achieve or something I receive? It's something I receive. And how would the pursuit of intimacy Change to know it's a gift that is yours in Christ. From all this, it should be obvious that Jesus is the basis for our divine participation. As John Owen says in his classic book, Communion with God, Scripture shows us that we hold communion, and communion is the idea of sharing in and participating in. We hold communion with the Lord Jesus Christ in grace by a marriage relationship. The spiritual relationship is accompanied with mutual love, and so this fellowship with Christ, we experience and enjoy all the excellent things that are found in Him, and in Him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is the bridegroom. We, as the church, is His bride. And in this union, we enjoy all of the benefits as though they were ours by rights. Marriage is one way of describing our union, but the Bible uses a number of metaphors to help us understand this one truth. As Christ is the Son, we can be called sons of God, that is, adopted children, Galatians 4. While Jesus is the anointed one, he anoints us with his Spirit, 1 John chapter 2. While Christ is heir, we are joint heirs or co-heirs with Jesus. With these descriptions, we are graciously allowed to come alongside Jesus to be treated to his blessings on the same level. At points, we read of another level of identification. Sometimes we are said in the plural to be exactly what Jesus is in the singular. While Christ is the living stone, we are living stones. 1 Peter 2, 4, 5. While Christ is the seed, we are the seed, Galatians 3, 16. While Christ is the light of the world, we are the light of the world, John 8 and Matthew 5. 
He is the vine, we are the branches. John chapter 15. Note that it, in this example, it is not that Christ is the root structure and we are the branches. Rather, we form part of the vine. The vine is one. We are uh, in this organic relationship and are connected to him by faith. And that's the whole truth of union with Christ. It is an organic relationship in which we receive from him life-giving power. As we draw upon him by faith, we are united to him. And our union with Christ is unalterable. It's unchangeable. It is immutable. It will never go away. I will be united to Christ forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, as long as you can think. Keep going. I will always be united to Christ. But my enjoyment of that union fluctuates. You remember when Peter uh, responded to Jesus as he was washing in John chapter 13, the disciples' feet, and he comes to feed Peter, and Peter says, oh no, don't do it. I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, but if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you will have no part with me. And of course, Peter is an overreactor. I know nobody here is an overreactor. But Peter is an overreactor. And he overreacts, no, not just my feet, but my head, my hands, my body. Wash me all. Jesus says, you don't need all of it washed. Just need your feet washed. Representing our daily living out in a walk of a relationship with Christ. We need his cleansing in order to maintain that intimacy with God. Because what robs us of intimacy? What blocks our intimacy? What makes our connection with Christ unreal and uh, limits its power, our sin. That's why the practice of confession of sin is so important because it helps reestablish that intimacy. So there is reciprocity uh, between Christ. Uh, another category of the Bible where it speaks of our union with Christ is Christ is the head. We are the body. Christ is the groom. We are the bride. So here's something beyond just mere identification. It's reciprocity. There's a back and forth. There's a give and take. It's a real relationship. And this union is not impersonal. It is an unbreakable bond of love that is ours by way of covenant. Our union with Christ could not be closer. The Apostle Paul speaks of our history and identity as entirely bound up in Jesus. We are hidden with Christ in God. He is our life. In this way, we're more united to Jesus than we are to ourselves. And certainly it is his identity, not our own, that determines our standing in God's eyes, both now and for all eternity. Well, how does that affect our pursuit of an intimate relationship? Let's make an analogy. I love to watch medieval movie, movies about castles and kings and lords and knights and what have you. Uh, I enjoy that. But let's imagine a film set in medieval times. And there's a snooty lord sitting on his throne. Think about the late Alan Rickman. He's perfect for this. He's sitting on the throne and there's a servant girl in the room. And she's done something menial for this Lord, and in return, he flings to her a pouch of silver. She grabs the money, scurries out of the Lord's presence to enjoy her reward. Now imagine a different scenario. A loving Lord who climbs off his throne 
and marries the servant girl. Now everything that is his belongs to her. And she is brought instantly into the royal family. This is our standing with God. We are not merely given things by God. We have, have uh, are now, what we have now is in Christ, and we are filled with His Spirit and brought before His Father. Intimacy with God is not something we work for. That is a pouch of silver flung our way because we prayed or worshipped or done whatever correctly. Intimacy with God is the gift of Christ who offers Himself to us gratis, for free. It, it, it would be so easy to prize spiritual feelings as the great benefit of the gospel. Yet actually, Christ himself is the gift we are given. He is the Lord who marries us all. And our talk of intimacy must never make an idol out of subjective experience. I remember when I came up in, uh, right after I was converted, you know, I felt great. I mean, I never felt like that before. The burden was lifted. God was real to me. And I began to just like, the, it's just like I'd entered a whole new realm of existence, which I had. And I said, I'm always going to feel this way. I'm always going to feel great. I'm always going to know the Lord's presence. I am always just going to be like walking in another world. You know, and that was back in the 60s, maybe, early 70s. And so it was far out, man. It was unbelievable. And so, we're, you know, you're walking around living like that. And then about a week later, I hit bottom. I said, where did he go? I don't feel him anymore. It is so easy to make an idol out of spiritual It's not spiritual experience you crave. It's Jesus. That's who you crave. Spiritual, you know, goosebumps might attend it sometimes, and it might not. There may be a great sense of Christ's presence sometimes, sometimes not. He comes when he wants to come. He shows himself when he wants to show himself. But we must never want intimacy more than we want Jesus. Intimacy is only our desire because Christ is the one we want to be near. But thank God we are near him, and you cannot get closer than in union with you do realize that once you become a Christian, your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit's being, penetrates your being, and He inhabits you. He indwells you. That's about as close as you can get, isn't it? What an amazing thing. Sometimes we don't think about that. We like to think of a temple as some building downtown somewhere else. But we corporately as a church are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we individually, as a believer, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're talking about, is union with Christ. And so, we never make an idol out of subjective experience, but we can't get any closer than what we have experienced in Him. But let's talk a little bit about what it cost to get us into an intimate relationship. And what I'm speaking of comes from Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. As we speak about intimacy with God and closeness with God, we must never forget the way into divine fellowship. We should not think of the Trinity as a big group hug in the sky singing Kumbaya. 
It would be awful to imagine a saccharine marriage union to Christ without acknowledging that it costs the blood of Christ, which underwrites it. If our conception of divine intimacy is kind of a spiritual candy floss, we will have a great difficulty in making sense of Scripture and of Jesus himself. In fact, we have a relationship with God that's dripping in blood. I want to think a little bit more about the costly way into divine friendship. Ever since humanity rejected the Lord Christ and trusted Satan instead, the way back to fellowship was blocked by fiery judgment. You remember the cherubim posted east of, uh, of the Garden of Eden at the gates of the Garden of Eden with fiery swords keeping anyone from ever entering back into the presence of the Lord, his sanctuary in Eden. And so, this fallen flesh and blood cannot participate in the life of God. Only the man out of heaven could ever belong to the inner circle of God's life. Yet, with infinite grace and condescension, this man, the Lord Jesus, came out of the heavens. He took the very flesh and blood of our humanity and redeemed it. Where we had failed, he conquered. Where we sinned, he obeyed. Where we fled, he stood tall. Where we had hated, he loved. Where we have erred, he taught. And where we were enslaved, he liberated. Where we were ashamed, he gave dignity. Where we were grasping at glory, he gave freely. Where we clung to life, he poured his out. On the cross, the God-man took on himself all the sin and guilt and shame of fallen humanity. He endured the divine fury at sin passing through fiery judgment on the way to God. God poured out the bowl of wrath in judgment upon his son. And now in his glorious resurrection body, Christ, who Luther called the proper man, the true man, stands beyond death and judgment. Our elder brother, has gone up to the Father's right hand, ascending into the inner circle of God's life and taking our humanity with him. Christ will forever bear our humanity. He goes there for us. We and ourselves would be swept away by God's righteous anger in, at sin, and yet Christ is the way to the Father, and in him who quenched the wrath of hostile heaven we have obtained access. In Christ's blood atonement, that's the heart of divine intimacy. And so it changes the way we approach God. But as we think about the fundamental truths of the gospel again, why do we do that? Firstly, because intimacy with God is enjoyed in large part when the gospel is recounted. But secondly, we recount the story of the cross because sometimes people speak of union with the Christ as some sort of nicety, tranquil nicety. At times, the fatherhood of God, adoption into his family, oneness with Jesus are articulated without the blood and the fire of the Bible's presentation. But we desperately need the grit and grime, the sweat and tears of Christ's atonement if we're ever going to experience true intimacy with God. A toothless, bloodless message about a heavenly father figure does not connect with people who live every day in the midst of suffering and sin. It cannot connect because the only real connection is with 
the bleeding sacrifice of our Savior. Yet if we want intimacy and closeness with God, He, Jesus, is the one we really need. Jesus actually meets us in the God-forsakenness of life as we know it. In our talk with if, if our talk about intimacy with God is not dripping in the blood of Christ, we are simply preaching a fine idea to people who are truly burdened with shame and guilt. People with real sins, which are all of us, will never connect with words of divine participation unless they are words from a God-forsaken Savior to a God-forsaken people. It is no coincidence that the chapter that trumpets most loudly the unbreakable possession of the love of God in Christ is also so full of suffering. Romans chapter 8 is precisely to those who are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That Paul proclaims God's unconquerable love. Intimacy with God is not the opposite of suffering or flight from it. It is ours in the midst of the valley of the shadow. When our union with the lamb that was slain we cannot be shocked when we are like sheep that are to be slaughtered. No wonder the testimony of God's people through the ages has been the same. The sweetest times of divine intimacy often come at the time of our greatest suffering. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar and the Son of God, the fourth person who was there with him. Think of Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable to his death until I attain the resurrection of the dead. Or think of Corrie ten Boom, her famous saying, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Suffering is not a diversion from divine intimacy. It is often the way to divine intimacy intimacy. And there's another reason we need to remember the cruciformity or the cross-shaped uh, significance of our relationship with God. In our talk of divine intimacy is not completely cross-shaped, then it's too easy to play off intimacy with God against taking up the cross daily. That, of course, would be absurd, but it's commonly done. Too often people think of divine intimacy as, as sort of a cup of coffee and a nice visit with God. On the other hand, discipleship is the arduous task of dying daily to ourselves. Yet when we realize to whom we are united, that we see that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into his death, and a life of cross-shaped, self-giving sacrifice is not the price of divine intimacy, it is the nature of it. Jesus is the true man in true fellowship with God. And we know what intimacy looks like. It looks like a cross. Therefore, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Boy, that doesn't sound too user-friendly, does it? Uh, you know, I, somebody asked me one time, Do you ever want to be a megachurch pastor? I said, well... At one time I did, but then I realized if I really preach what the Bible says, they're all going to run out the back door. It, 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 all you'll see is smoke because <laughs> people scatter. And I said, I think I could empty a megachurch. I don't think I could ever fill one. And I could do it pretty quickly. 
Because they don't, they don't understand that the nature of being close to God involves dying to ourselves. And if you think dying to yourself is some sort of esoteric idea, it's not. I hate it. It's death. That's what it feels like to die to myself. It feels like death. But I often find my Savior drawing me and calling me frequently, often. This is not the arduous downside of Christian experience. It's the very shape of it. We are united to a crucified Christ, and our own lives will therefore bear the marks of death as well as the marks of resurrection. One other quick note on intimacy before we finish. Can we really know intimacy in the midst of suffering and sacrifice? Can we really do that? Sometimes our pain, our despair, our sense of guilt can be so overwhelming that we feel we can't pray. You ever been there? You ever just couldn't do it? You couldn't form the words? You were just hurting so deeply you couldn't pray? Is there, any, is there really any intimacy to be spoken of at these times? And the answer is yes, because we have a great high priest and his name is Jesus. And so the wonderful truth is the priesthood of Christ means he does not simply bring God's life down to us. He also offers up our life to God. He is not just God for us. He is also man for God. This priestly ministry of Christ is such good news for sluggish, sinful sufferers like me. If divine intimacy was simply about our attempts to get close to God, we'd have no hope. The good news is that Jesus has gotten close to God, and he's done that for us. And the letter to the book Hebrews speaks of Christ as our forerunner, the one who goes before, has entered heaven on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What if you knew Jesus was in the next room praying for you right now? What if you knew that? Often people ask me to pray for them. I'm glad to do that. Often I'll ask people to pray for me. But the most wonderful thing to know is that he's praying for you. He's offering intercession for you. We do not have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of God, or we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of God, the throne of majesty in heaven who serves in the sanctuary. He has a vital, ongoing ministry at the Father's right hand. He is our elder brother and priest who serves in heaven. Jesus Christ is the righteous one and yet invites us to share in his holy life. Just as Christ is the great sufferer who yet allows us to share in his sufferings. So Christ is the great high priest. But now we participate too. We get to add our amen to the perfect prayer of Jesus. James Torrance, a Scottish theologian, said the following. Christian worship is therefore our participation through the Spirit in the Son's communion with the Father. And so worship exists because the Son is already at the right hand of the Father praising Him. And so we join in with Him. 
Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. You are on his heart. Your name is graven in his hands. You know, people often say, well, where was God when this happened to me? Or where was God when he took my child? Or where was this when this, happened? this terrible thing occurred? He's at the right hand of the Father, representing you, bearing your grief before the Father, petitioning the Father for you. He is your Savior. He's your high priest. People often used to say, when I was a young Christian, you know, do you feel far from God? Well, guess who moved? And uh, the answer is what you did, right? But I'd like to respond to that question a little bit differently. Who moved? Christ did. Christ, right into God's presence, he went there on your behalf. And when you feel far from God, and we all feel distant at times, our restoration does not depend on our getting back into God's presence. What is decisive is Christ's movement into God's presence, having taken us with him. Sure, there's much to repent of when we sin and grieve the Spirit and when we neglect our fellowship with Christ and when we pursue other loves and not our fathers. But we both sin and repent from within the embrace of God. It is our stupidity, our sluggishness, our suffering, and our sin. We can impair our sense of communion with God, but our union with Christ remains unshakable. And it is this union that is foundational for the restoration of our communion. He's always the father running to embrace the prodigal son who comes home. I don't know if you've ever looked at it very closely. But all the theological definitions I've ever read of repentance, the prodigal son, is awful. He doesn't do it right, does he? He's only coming from the worst motives. He's thinking, you know, here I am. In the crib, full of corn husk, feeding, eating what the swine eat. And in my father's house, the servants have got a lot better gig than I have here in this trough. So I will get up, I will come to myself, I will go to my father and offer my services as a hired service. You know what that is? Legalism. That's That's not repentance. It's not repentance at all. But when he comes up that path and the father who probably went out on the porch every day and looked to the horizon and prayed for his son saw a figure coming and he runs to the son. He embraced and the son starts, you know, giving him his spiel and the, and the father pays no attention to it. He smothers him in kisses. He wraps a robe around him. He gives him a ring. He puts sandals on his feet. That's the kind of intimacy we enjoy with God. So, let's talk a little bit about the experience of intimacy. When we think of intimacy with God, what do we picture? Perhaps we think about a private experience. Yet most often in Scripture, our intimacy is expressed and enjoyed corporately. In community, we reflect the life of the triune life, a being in community to which we have been called. As, as a community, we are Christ's body and bride. 
It is a community that Christ leads in worship. A merely private intimacy with God misses the fullness of what we are offered. You know, the old desert fathers used to uh, go out and practice solitude, and often they would uh, do surgery upon themselves to remove certain things that they thought generated lust. Then they'd get out in the desert and still lust and go, uh-oh. No, they wouldn't, but they would. But they thought the way to intimacy with God is for me to go out here by myself and just enjoy God. You know that old 60s ideal of moving to the country and having my own home far away from all people and just living the transcendent life. You know, that's stupid. It's not biblical. God made us for relationship. And the relationship is not just with God, it's with people. And sometimes what I learn about God, I learn through what you have learned about God. There are ways in which I get to know him, not just through my own experience, but through the corporate experience and through the interaction with other believers. That's why things like community group are so important in a church. That's a place where people can continue to connect and experience intimacy with God. It is certainly true that worship of God can be 24-7. It is true I am continually one with Christ, whether I'm by myself or with others. But consider the marriage analogy. I'm always one with my wife, even when we're separated by oceans. Yet the experience of intimacy comes with setting aside of times and places. So it is with our experience of intimacy. There are special times and places and together is best in acts chapter 2 verse 42 some of the marks of the pentecostal church gives us a beautiful picture of the teaching the fellowship the breaking of the bread and the prayers of the early church so in addition to the foundational principle of corporate worship which, by the way, is why you need to attend worship regularly, is it promotes intimacy in your relationship with God. But we also enjoy a personal devotional life. Our prayer lives are essentially the living out of our intimacy with God. Every struggle we have with prayer is at the same time a struggle to believe the good news. We forget that God is our Father and approach Him like He's disinterested boss. We forget that Christ is our high priest, so we feel far from God. We forget the spirit of adoption dwells in us, and so to imagine that prayer is beyond us. As we consider our experience of intimacy, we're in a wilderness. Certainly Jesus taught us to pray a wilderness prayer. Give us today our daily prayer. And that makes us think of the manna in Exodus 16. Jesus paints the Christian life as something like the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. We too need daily bread. No longer do we slave in the Egypt of sin, but neither have we entered the promised land. There's a sense in which we live in a very dry, uh, arid place. We exist in an in-between time, saved for sin, heading for glory. But right now we're beggars, needy beggars, desperate each day for the bread of life. Christians have everything in Christ. Yet 99% of the blessings we will experience are for the life to come. Do you hear what I said? 
The best we get now is simply a foretaste, simply earnest money, simply down payment. We will not get the fullness until we enjoy it in the very presence of our Savior. We live in the overlap of the ages, battling with the flesh we've inherited from Adam, but enjoying the spirit we have seen or we have received from Christ. And so intimacy with God is living by faith, but as a way of letting you know what's come, come next, God has provided certain means of grace that cultivate, develop, and promote intimacy. And if you come back next Sunday, I will tell you what they are. I will not tell you today. You just have to starve for a week. No. But that's what I want you to see. 99% of what's going to make heaven heaven, we do not yet experience. We are not home yet. We are not home yet. We live in the nasty now and now. And while we have a foretaste of glory, we do not yet have it fully. Therefore, there seems to be absence of God's presence in our lives. But He's there. And we, can, we have the capacity, even now, to experience life-changing intimacy with Christ. I close with this. Come all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on that what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you today for the beauty of this truth of our union and communion with you. And we do pray that we would grow in grace and knowledge to be able to both realize and participate in the reality of that union given the means you've given us to do so. And we pray your blessing upon us now as we continue to worship and give back to you a portion of that which you have so graciously given to us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.